Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, James chapter 5. While you're looking there, uh, let me just mention a couple of things to you. Uh, hardly a week goes by uh, without someone asking me, well, how, how's church attendance going? How is uh, the pandemic affecting uh, attendance? How's the pandemic affecting offerings and that kind of thing? And uh, the pandemic is affecting things for sure. It's affecting uh, church attendance uh, nationwide, probably worldwide, but certainly nationwide. Um, we're running about 40%. Our attendance is about 40% of our pre-pandemic average. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we were averaging around somewhere between 320 and 360, uh, closer to maybe 350 on average, sometimes less than that, sometimes more. And uh, since we reopened on July the 5th, our attendance in both of our services combined is about 40%. We're running about 50% uh, in our first service and about 30% in this service, which is, is uh, pretty typical. Uh, as we call around and, and talk with different churches in the area and around the Atlanta area, we're finding churches that are running anywhere from 20% of their pre-pandemic average to 70% of their pre-pandemic average. Uh, the churches that are running 20% tend to be uh, contemporary only. The ones who are running 70, 60 to 70%, they, they're typically uh, traditional churches with an older uh, demographic, uh, which is also uh, quite typical. But we're running about 40% when, when uh, the average goes uh, somewhere from 35 to 45% among the churches we've talked to. Uh, our offerings, we're actually uh, making our budget. I'm so grateful to you for your faithfulness, for your commitment. It's really amazing what you are doing, what God is doing through you in spite of this pandemic. Uh, our July offerings were the second highest month of offerings in this entire year, which is unheard of for July. July is normally low attendance, low offerings, and yet you have really come through in a major way. Please don't let up. Please don't uh, back up on that. Continue to do what you are doing in, in uh, supporting uh, our church financially, we appreciate it so very much. And one of these days, we're going to get through this thing and hopefully be back not just to normal, but to better than, better than what we were when we, when we thought about being normal. So I look forward to that uh, very much. But I appreciate you, uh, what you're doing so far. Uh, let me ask you this question. What would our world look like if everyone who calls himself or herself a follower of Christ lived by a Christian code of conduct? What would our world look like? Several years ago, uh, about 15, 16 years ago, I uh, was, was we, ha I had a, we had a church member in another city and they were, they were having some health issues and, and they were serious enough that I needed to fly out to see them. And uh, so 
the, the flight tickets were pretty expensive. The church would have covered it. But uh, we have several people in our church who are either current employees of an airline industry or they're retired from the airline industry. And some of those folks said, hey, we have a buddy pass and we'll let you use our buddy pass. Uh, as you know, if you were, uh, are an employee or retired uh, employee of the airline industry, one of the benefits they give you are something called buddy passes, which means that you can fly uh, for just a nominal fee or a, ma- a family member or a friend. If you uh, loan or, or give the buddy pass to a family friend, they can go for a uh, just a, a, a small fee. And so someone said, hey, we'll let you use one of our buddy passes and you can fly. Well, you have to go and, and to a certain office and pick up the buddy pass and the employee has to sign it f- for you. And they gave me a buddy pass. And along with it, there was a form uh, that I had to read and sign off on. And, and as I looked at that form, I, I realized that it was a... Uh, it, it was a, a, a code of ethics, a code of conduct that I would have to adhere to in order to use this buddy pass, in order to, for them to give me this seat for a small fee on this uh, plane. And I got a thinking about that. See, even though I wasn't an employee or even a, a retired from the airline industry, these buddy passes were for their employees or former employees. And so if, if they gave this buddy pass to one of their employees who then gave it, you, you're basically, by implication, a representative of the airline. And so they expected you to adhere to certain behaviors and to avoid certain other behaviors, a code of conduct. That got, to me, that got me to thinking about uh, codes of conduct. I used to be in real estate back in the uh, late 90s, and real estate agents, uh, although it might be surprising, they, they have to adhere to uh, a code of ethics. If you are in the military, people who join the military have to, uh, have to swear and promise to live by the code of conduct for members of the United States Armed Forces. Uh, we, our schools are going back into session, it, some sort of semblance, and hopefully at some point, uh, sooner rather than later, we'll be able to go full-blown in-seat school when it's safe. But... Uh, Teachers, administrators, and students all have to adhere to a code of ethics. There are certain things, a dress code, certain dress that is allowed while other forms of dress are not allowed. So um, a code of ethics or a code of conduct conveys some expectation of behavior. And so in thinking about a code of ethics, I thought about a code of ethics for Christians, what would it look like? What is, this, is expected of, of those of us who follow Christ, who profess to be followers of Christ, who profess to have a relationship with Christ? What would that look like? Do you think that being a Christian ought to be different? Do you think it ought to make any difference at all in the way we live, in the, uh, our, our speech, in uh, the way we interact with people, the way we handle trials? James feels or felt that it should make a difference. 
James is a, a letter, five chapters total. He's writing not to lost people. He's not writing out to people out in the world. He's writing to Christian people. He's writing to people who are members of various churches. We don't know exactly who the churches were, but we know that they were scattered throughout the region. He's writing to them and he's saying basically, hey, you and I who profess to be Christians should act a certain way. Our relationship with Christ should flow out into the way we live, and people ought to be able to notice that difference. Now, he hits that, that emphasis in every one of his chapters, and he does so here in the, in the uh, fifth chapter. And basically, he's, he's providing kind of a, a code of ethics for those of us who are Christians. So let's ask the question, what would James include? What should be included in a code of ethics, a code of conduct for those of us who know Christ? Well, the first thing James says that should be in it is that Christians who know Christ, follow Christ, should act justly. Act justly. That is, we should, we should act in a just way. We should be all about justice. We should, all be, a, we should be about fairness. Look at verse, verse one, verses one through six. Look here, he says, you rich people weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you in the day of judgment. For listen, Hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now, we have to be careful with these verses. When James says we're to act justly and he calls out in these congregations the wealthy people, he's not condemning or criticizing uh, being rich. He's not criticizing the accumulation of wealth in and of itself. If you and I read the Bible, we will find that there were many wealthy people who God raised up to do some pretty awesome things. In fact, some of us have been given by God the spiritual gifts of giving just to have a special knack for giving. All of us are called to give, but some of us have a, a very special uh, gift for being generous. I have found that people who have the spiritual gift of giving many times also have a spiritual gift for, for being able to make money. God is not against those who are wealthy any more than he's against those who are poor. But, but who James is calling out in these first six verses are wealthy people who gained their wealth by abusing people with, who were under their control. He says in, 
Uh, verse number four, he says, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. And verse six, you have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. What he's talking about here is, is the way that people treat other people. And he's saying we need to treat people fairly. We need to treat people equitably. We need to treat people justly. James is not alone in this sentiment. In the Old Testament, a very familiar passage from the book of Micah, one of the, one of the minor prophets, Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Micah says, God has shown you, O mortal, mortal refers to people, O human being, he could have said, God has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So uh, just like Micah in the Old Testament, in the first six verses of James chapter 5, James is saying with the rest of, the, of Scripture that, that followers of Christ should have a reputation for acting justly, doing what is right by other people. What else does James say? Not only act justly, but in this code of Christian conduct, he says we need to develop patience. Develop patience. Man, this is something I really have a hard time with. Beginning with verse 7, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too, he says, you must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Again, verse 7, be patient as you wait. Did you notice that James makes a distinction between waiting on one hand and being patient on the other? The ability to wait is not all of what being patient is about. To be patient means to have a good attitude as we wait for something that God is going to provide us. Now, in this case, James says, be patient as you wait. Wait for what? For the Lord's return. You and I live in what's called, what I call an in-between time. In an in-between time, in between Jesus' first trip to earth where he lived, he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected on the one hand. We live between that event on the one hand and a future event when Christ returns to take us to heaven with him. We live in between those two trips by Jesus to earth. And as we live in this interim time, waiting for the second arrival of Jesus, James says, develop patience, develop a positive attitude, a productive attitude as you wait for God to arrive, not just when Christ returns though, but when he arrives to deal with each different circumstance in your life. I know you remember from James chapter 1, that James's audience 
was Christians. It was a group of Christians, and they were going through an array of trials and crises. Some of them were going through some sort of crisis, we don't know what it was, that everybody was experiencing, much like we all are going through this pandemic crisis, and everybody's is, 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 everyone is experiencing it. But at the same time, they were going through individual situations family situations, just like you and I are. We all are going through this pandemic and some other uh, uh, crises in our nation and in the world, but at the same time, you are going through your own respective hardship, your own respective trials, different things that you're going through that the person next to you or behind you or in front of you is not going through. And so, In these crises, James's readers were stressed out. They were tired, they were exhausted, they were stressed out, and they were much like we are. When we're stressed out, we lash out. Sometimes at the folks who are closest to us, sometimes at the folks who love us the most. That happens all the time, that's happening now during this crisis period, it was happening to them. And so James says, look, act justly, even during a crisis, and develop patience with God, with each other. Then he goes on, and number three in this code of conduct, he says, be cordial with each other. This is a logical flow from being patient with each other, isn't it? If we're patient with one another, we'll be cordial, that is, we'll be, we'll, we'll be friendly, we'll be kind to each other. Look at verse, beginning with verse 9. He says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets, why is he lifting them up in this section about patience and cordiality to each other? Uh, Because the, the prophets were constantly experiencing people who grumbled at them. Well, they, they were constantly ministering to people who were grumbling with each other. Verse 11, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. The King James Version says the patience of Job, although uh, when you read the book of Job, Uh, One wonders exactly how patient Job was, didn't seem to be all that patient, but what he did do, he persevered, he endured under some of the most extreme hardship and loss that anybody has ever experienced. And then James goes on to say, "You, you know about Job, you can see how the Lord was kind to Job at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy." be cordial to each other. The prophets faced grumbling. Job, a person of perseverance and endurance, but have you ever read Job? I mean, the first two chapters, crisis hits Job. The last two chapters, God arrives and he helps Job. But in between those first two and last two bookend chapters, you have chapter after chapter after chapter where Job's three and later four friends show up and just grumble to him. Basically accuse him. Job, you know why this has happened to you? You know why all these bad things have happened to you? You know why your 10 children got killed in a hurricane? Because you sinned, Job. Job. Because you're a bad guy. 
course, it wasn't true. It's what Job faced. So James is pulling out examples, the prophets and Job, of people who, who stood the test in the face not only of crisis, but also of grumbling. And he says, be, James says, be cordial with each other. Do you remember what Jesus said when he gave the one characteristic that would distinguish Christians from everybody else? Do you remember what he said? He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, my followers. How? By your love for each other. He'd be so sad. The Lord must be so sad looking down and seeing the division that's in uh, his worldwide church and in his local church today. James says, look, here's a code of ethics. Act justly, develop patience, be cordial with one another. And then fourth, he says this, don't waste your words. Verse 12, but most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else, just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Don't waste your words. Now, James has already mentioned two ways that we can waste our words. One is by grumbling against each other. Grumbling just divides. Grumbling grumbling, uh, contributes to animosity. Grumbling does not solve issues. The Bible gives us ways to solve issues. Grumbling is never one of them. James says grumbling with each other is a waste of words. Then he says in verse 12, this very unusual verse, he says swearing, that is giving an oath, is a waste of words. You're better just saying yes or no. This is a puzzling verse. What is James talking about? I mean, we go to court. If you're, if you're to testify in court or if you're uh, to serve on a jury, you have to swear by an oath, sometimes putting your hand on the Bible. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. Is that the kind of oath that he's talking about? Uh, people who are um, uh, our political leaders, they are called to swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States. Is that the kind of oath James is talking about that we shouldn't do? I don't think so. I think very simply what James is saying is this, don't waste your words. Don't use your language in a flippant, careless, meaningless way. And in order to understand what James is saying, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament. The ancient Jews had this idea about, uh, about words. For them, the spoken word had power. It still does, by the way. But they believed the spoken word had so much power that, that speaking something actually had a creative power to it that could not be taken back. You couldn't put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. It went back to James, I mean, Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible, where all of creation, it says, was brought into being as a result of the voice of God speaking, the words of God. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a firmament. All of it was the result of God's words. 
And so the ancient Jews believed that if you said something, that you needed to think about it enough that what you said had a positive rather than a destructive power. They were a little extreme in their belief. I know that you remember the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there is a a regional uh, tribe leader named Jephthah. Jephthah was uh, an illegitimate, they call him an illegitimate son. His brothers or half-brothers got in trouble. Who do they go to? They go to Jephthah. Jephthah, you've got to come lead us. You've got to come lead our tribe because some militias from other places are coming in trying to invade us. You've got to help us. Jephthah came in to lead their army against the enemy tribes trying to invade them. But before he led his brothers and sisters and countrymen into battle, he prayed to God. He says, God, if you will give us victory, watch this, if you will give us victory, when I come back home, the first thing out of my front door, I will sacrifice to you in appreciation for the victory you give us. He leads his half-brothers and their other militiamen into battle. They win. They defeat their enemy. They come back. And Jephthah is in a ticker tape parade. And he comes to his front door. He's headed towards his front door. And out that door comes his one and only child, a daughter. And she was a daddy's girl. Which would be great had it not been for the fact that Jephthah had made a vow. He had said something. And what he said was, the first thing that comes out of my door, I'm going to sacrifice to you, God. That girl came out and he knew that in order to keep his promise, he would have to sacrifice his one and only child. Now, if you're like me, you're looking at that and you're thinking, well, there's a simple solution to that. You take it back. You take it back. Jephthah, take it back. You shouldn't have made it to begin with, but now that you have made it, take it back. But Jephthah was an ancient Jewish man, and he didn't believe that you could take the words back once you have said them. And so he ended up sacrificing his daughter out of appreciation to God for God giving him victory. Keep in mind, God did not require that he sacrifice his daughter. That was, that was a rash move that Jephthah had made. But my point here is that the ancient Jews felt like words had power. And therefore, you should not, at least except for in the case of Jephthah, you should not say something flippantly. And so James tells us, he says, look, don't waste your words. Don't waste your words grumbling. Don't waste your words uh, on oaths that that you're going to later regret. But instead, put your words to positive use. And he lists some positive uses for your words. First of all, put your words to work through praying. Verse 13, are any of you suffering hardships? They all were. You should pray, he says. Put your words to work through worship. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer, he says, offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Put your words to work through prayer, through worship. 
Put your words to work through confession. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now be careful here. I don't think James is suggesting that you should get up in front of everybody and confess all of your dirty laundry to everybody else. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that it is it is therapeutic, it is healing, it is positive, it is productive to find people, godly people you trust and confess your sins to them. He says the earnest prayer of a righteous person, that person you trust who's godly, has great power, produces wonderful results. And then he gives uh, as an illustration Elijah from the Old Testament. Elijah was as human as we are, James says. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky went, sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. So James says, don't waste your words. Don't use your words in destructive ways. Instead, use your words in beneficial ways. Don't waste your words. The final thing he tells us that would be in this code of conduct is be about restoring fallen people. Be about restoring people who have failed. Verse 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth, which by the way is going to be all of us to some extent at some point in our lives. If someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, if you bring them back, and and let me just stop right here. The words brought back, you bringing them back restoring them is a a medical phrase in the Greek language that literally means to reset, to carefully reset a bone. You do it gently, slowly, hopefully, meticulously, methodically, with love. If someone among you wanders away from the truth and you bring them carefully back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Jesus left heaven and came to earth because we were fallen. That's The foundational truth of the Christian life is that we were fallen and Jesus left heaven to save us. That implies that all of us have failed at least once. Really, all of us have failed many times. And if Jesus was willing and saw it necessary to leave heaven to come down to save us, then we also who know Christ, who've been saved by Christ, who've been healed by Christ, it is our responsibility then to reach out to others who have fallen and restore them. Now, but when we do that, be careful If, I, if, I, if I'm going to reach out to restore somebody, I need to make sure, first of all, that I am right. Because if I'm not right, and I reach out to try to restore someone, it may end up that I'm the one who's fallen. I'm the one who's mistaken. I'm the one who has failed and in need of being restored. 
make sure we get the plank, the log out of our own eye before we try to deal with the speck of dust in our brother's eye. In the book of James, James contends that you and I are little Christs. That's what the term Christian means, little Christs. And if we are to be little Christ, James says that we should act like Christ in the world. So the question for us is this, when people see us, do we remind them of Jesus? That's, that's, the, that's the question for us. Back in 1805, 1805, there was a group of Native American Indian chiefs and warriors who met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York. It was 1805. They met there to hear a sermon, a presentation by a missionary from the Boston Missionary Society. His name was Cram, Mr. Cram. He preached his sermon, which basically was an evangelistic sermon to get the Native American people to accept Christ. And after the sermon, there was one of the chiefs called Red Jacket was assigned the responsibility to respond to the preacher. And here's what the chief said. He said, sir, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the great spirit. If there is but one religion, he says, why do you Christian people differ so much about it? Why not all agree as you can all read the book? We're told that you've been preaching to people in this area for a long time. And these people are our neighbors, he said. We are acquainted with them. Here's what we will do. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has on them. If we find that it does them good, makes them honest and less disposed to cheat our tribes, then we will consider again what you have said, unquote. I go back to the question I started this message with. What if everyone waited to see the effect our Christianity has on us before they decide to accept it? What if that happened? How many people would accept Christ based on seeing our own Christianity and the difference that Christ has made in us? Well, here's, here's the real deal. That's exactly what they are doing. People out there are watching you and me to see if there's any similarity to Jesus in us. The question is, will they see him in us? Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize how important it is that we who call ourselves by your name, we who 
profess to have a relationship with you, we realize how important it is that we act like you. That we love like you. That we care about people like you. That we believe in justice like you do. Forgive us when our conduct is different from any of those things. Help us to be more like you. Because Lord, we believe in heaven. We believe that the way to get to heaven is through a relationship with Jesus. And Lord, I would hate for someone to miss out on heaven because they looked at my own life and said, I don't want anything like that. Lord, help us to look like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.